Hey, everybody. With the Consumer Technology Association, I'm Tyler Suters. We are the owners and the producers of CES, the largest, the most influential tech event in the world. We are here to help you get CES ready. The big show is January 7th through the 10th, as always, in Las Vegas. Today, we are addressing the topic of cryptocurrency. Now, CES is where you'll find the latest in blockchain technology and how it's being incorporated into business solutions. And this is a technology that means greater security for a panoply of plays here, from think of food safety and the supply chain all the way to payment processing and data sharing, multiple valuable uses. And today, two different points of view on the crypto sector. First of all, we're talking to one of CNN Business's digital correspondents, someone who writes daily about the markets and the blue chip companies and is on CNNI's business programs regularly and has a real focus on digital currency, especially where we've been in the last year and where we may be heading over the next five years or so. Also, a conversation with cryptocurrency startup Zocial. Their co-founder is a Silicon Valley microprocessing veteran, also a holder of multiple patents. So what in the world is he doing in the crypto sector and why is he so optimistic? All of that is coming up on today's edition of CES Tech Talk. With us now from New York is Paul LaMonica. He is digital correspondent for CNN Business. You have probably read his content, whether you realize it or not. Paul, glad you're with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You have been neck deep in this topic for a number of years now. Um, chart its path since you've been keeping a close eye on cryptocurrency and, and the larger digital money space. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Bitcoin is obviously, uh, first and foremost, I think, the main crypto that people follow. And it's really been fascinating to watch what has happened to Bitcoin, Bitcoin prices in the past couple of years when we got close to, you know, $20,000 at the end of uh, 2017 and then uh, came crashing back down to earth last year. But it's had a nice rebound, even though it's remained pretty volatile this year. And I think... Uh, you know, that uh, you're starting to get this sense that Bitcoin may still not ever be a true form of payment that many of the evangelists want it to be. I think it's kind of like a crypto, I mean, it's a currency on steroids. It's, uh, you know, something that I think a lot of people just love to trade like a stock. Because, I mean, let's be honest here, cryptocurrencies move in a much more dramatic fashion than old-fashioned paper currencies issued by the uh, you know governments and central banks. I mean, yeah, yeah, for, for, be, dollar, for better yen, or worse, right? That that goes both right. ways, exactly. certainly. Um, so to your point, if it's not a viable currency just yet, or if crypto isn't a viable currency writ large, um, is it then a viable commodity, an viable investment? Yeah, exactly. I think that it could be something that is better suited for commodity investors and people that really have a very high tolerance for risk. I mean, you look at how it has surged back this year. I mean, it's now trading at about, you know, 7,500 or so, uh, you know, and that's sharply higher than where it ended 2018, but it's well off the highs from earlier this year as well when, you know, we got close to, you know, over 12,000 again. So it's something that moves extremely dramatically obviously it's very 
headline driven. I think um, you know some of the skepticism about uh, Facebook and Libra uh, lately has uh, maybe hurt Bitcoin. Even though in uh, you know prior months maybe the the introduction of Libra really helped Bitcoin because I think it uh, you know in many investors' minds uh, legitimized or helped make uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies writ large you know a, a real thing. If, if Facebook is willing to make this big bet with Libra on cryptocurrencies, it's it's harder to ignore the growing trend of cryptocurrencies as you know a store of value, if not necessarily a a um, you know an acceptable uh, mass market digital payment. So. Last month in one of your pieces, Paul, I saw this this great tension point within there where you're talking to an industry analyst who says, well, just by nature, less and less Bitcoin is mined year over year. And so the inherent value uh, will grow, right? There's there's less of a commodity year after year to, to some degree. I know that's scalable and won't get into the math, but there's the quote in your very next line, and I'll paraphrase here, is something like, of course, this is ridiculously volatile, and who knows what will happen next year, much less next week, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, to go further, I think what I said after that was, it's you know, it's not necessarily though the wild west anymore because this is something that has validity because of things like Facebook and Libra, as well as uh, futures trading on the Chicago Mercantile sure, Exchange. Sure, the broader the broader big, landscape, uh, brokers, right, right? Yeah, big brokers have uh, you know embraced it as well with futures trading for the likes of Schwab and E Trade and uh, you know TD Ameritrade, which is in the process of getting bought by Schwab. But I think yeah, really, when you look at how there is that aspect of Bitcoin mining, that it is something that I think savvy investors do need to realize that unlike a paper currency that you have the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of Japan, et cetera, turning on the proverbial printing presses, because of Bitcoin mining and the way that it's hard-coded into you know, blockchain software, that there are only a certain amount of Bitcoins that will be mined, you know, and the number that gets produced every couple of years is cut in half. It does wind up creating a bit of a supply shock that, you know, some people have said is similar to when you have oil supply shock. So that can artificially boost prices. And that may be something that we're already seeing this year in anticipation of that sort of quadrennial event and, you know, could happen, uh, you know, it could extend into uh, next year. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned more than once already, Paul, Libra, right? The Facebook announcement earlier this year. Um, I think it's generally well understood in this space what Facebook is doing uh, in cryptocurrency. How about the why? What's your take on why uh, a, a global giant in the tech space like this wants to be in crypto right now? Yeah, I think Facebook is obviously very savvy and recognizes that it has billions of users on not just the Facebook platform, but on Instagram and WhatsApp as well. And that digital commerce is a potential way for Facebook to generate even more revenue, make it maybe less dependent on advertising and having a viable digital currency that it uh, can uh, you know have it be pegged more to the dollar and not be as subject to the volatility that Bitcoin and Ether and Litecoin and other cryptocurrencies uh, you know have those you know pretty wild dramatic swings that this could be good for for uh, Facebook and and just add a uh, revenue stream for them that they might need. But of course, the big question is going to be 
how will not just consumers, but regulators view any Libra efforts from Facebook? Obviously, we've already had a lot of skepticism because it's not exactly a huge surprise or secret that Facebook has run into a lot of regulatory headaches and you know, bad PR over the past couple of years. Yeah, that's exactly where I was heading, Paul, is you know, we're here in Washington, D.C., and policy is often first and foremost in conversations. So although cryptocurrency um, and the digital side of things were, were under some scrutiny and there was a level of recognition uh, among policymakers here, um, Congress really didn't sink its teeth into it until the Facebook announcement, right? So how does that play out across all the players in this space? Because it seems like everybody will, will have to abide by whatever and if uh, Congress takes action, regulation is put into place. Yeah, I think that clearly, as we've seen, you know, with not just uh, concerns about regulation for cryptocurrencies, but regulations for tech writ large, we are in an environment right now where the Silicon Valley firms and you know big companies up in the state of Washington, Amazon and Microsoft, obviously, they're not as beloved by regulators and politicians the way they might have been in the past. Even though a lot of these companies are still applauded for you know being innovators and uh, creators of jobs, uh, I think big tech has, in some respects, almost replaced the big financial firms after after two thousand eight as uh, you know, a pretty easy sort of target and uh, you know, uh, whipping post. So all of the skepticism about Facebook and what we've seen also with Amazon and Google and Apple, I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. And it seems pretty bipartisan, obviously. I mean, there are a lot of Democratic leaders like Elizabeth Warren has been pretty outspoken, but we all know that President Trump... Uh, you know, has a bit of an axe to grind against some of the big tech companies as well. I mean, we, we know how much he dislikes Amazon because he conflates Amazon with uh, Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post. But uh, I really think that, uh, you know, the big tech companies are going to face more regulation in all of their businesses, and that's going to include Bitcoin and any other cryptocurrency moves that they make, like Facebook is doing with labor. So looking across the entire crypto landscape for a moment, Paul, um, you have the benefit as a journalist of talking to the smartest people in the room or outside the room. I don't want to put, put uh, guardrails around it. But in this space, what are you gleaning from them as you peer around the corner to the next, say, five years in the crypto and digital space? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I do think that... Uh, you are going to see people probably finally start to use crypto a little bit more than they have maybe uh, as a form of payment and not necessarily just as an investment. I don't think, again, that you're ever going to get to a, a point where people are going to necessarily feel comfortable uh, you know, buying a loaf of bread at the local grocery store using fractions of Bitcoin or paying for their Netflix subscription every month with the Bitcoin, for example. But I do think that you might have more companies that are going to adopt Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies as a viable form of payment. I mean, that's something that uh, you've seen some retailers, uh, you know, Overstock has uh, made some pretty big efforts in that area. And there are other retailers as well that I think may follow suit both online and, and offline. So I think that is the trend probably that's going to be worth watching, that it's going to slowly become a bigger part of actual, you know, commerce and digital payments and not necessarily 
just this trading asset that we've talked about. But I think by and large, it's still going to be something that's more of a, a plaything for sophisticated traders and not ever going to replace paper fiat currency. Is there, Paul, any kind of trend you can identify that, that gives you insight into who the big players will be then who's going to emerge from this pack in the next five, 10 years? Yeah. I mean, I think that obviously you can't ignore Facebook because it has made this big move with Libra, even though it's been pretty controversial. I'm sort of surprised that you haven't seen as much on the uh, crypto uh, front from the likes of Amazon, who would seemingly be an obvious contender to want to do more in digital currencies just because of the fact that they are obviously the largest e-commerce firm and that they are expanding aggressively into other aspects of retail as well with their own uh, physical stores and owning Whole Foods. So I think that uh, Amazon is a company that you'd have to watch. And then obviously Google as well, because with that alphabet structure, they have the flexibility to be more experimental and and uh, you know, really invest in things that may not pay off for uh, a long period of time, but uh, they have that willingness to make those sort of moonshot bets, and I think that that will uh, you know just continue in the years ahead. Sounds like you're uh, summing it up by saying, "Look to the Fang," right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, not Netflix. I don't think they're uh, you, know, <laughs> they, you know, obviously, you know, but no. I mean, I mean, we all love to talk about the Fang stocks because of them being sort of the big momentum plays. But, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, it really is your Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Apple, and Alphabet that are Mm -hmm. the main companies that are are dominating uh, tech right now. I mean, Netflix gets thrown into that group as a momentum play, but they are a much more somewhat simple story to understand because they really are mainly about uh, streaming media. They don't seem to have aspirations to be becoming a uh, major cloud company or a a retail giant the way that uh, some of these other companies have done, obviously. Uh, We'll look to your upcoming stories to uh, propose some alternate acronyms for us as we refer to the giants. Paul LaMonica, digital correspondent with CNN Business. Hey, a blast, Paul. Thanks so much for the insight. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you having me on. Joining us today from Silicon Valley is the CEO and co-founder of Zocial, Rick Blazinski. And Rick, it's good to have you with us today. Uh, good to have us uh, with you as well. Uh, you are no stranger to the startup realm. Um, you're a Silicon Valley veteran, to say the least. Uh, let's start by talking about exactly what Zocial is, what your what your company is, and its place in the ecosystem right now. So, sort of your your overall vision for what this company is. Okay, so at the high level, Zocial is working on transforming uh, the internet, which is one of the greatest inventions of all time, into the new global network of trust. And that is at the very high level of our vision. Um, Again, the internet is one of the greatest inventions of all time. However, it is you know, far from perfect, and there are lots of uh, room for improvement, such as privacy, centralization, security, performance, etc. Especially around the social network. So, what is this global network of trust? Who do we trust? Um, data privacy and trust among the many large companies are diminishing in the past several years. 
There are several technologies that are shaping the internet, and one of them is blockchain. Uh, with blockchain, uh, the trust actually transfers from the intermediary entities, institutions, middlemen, to mathematics and cryptography. So we are not eliminating the intermediaries, um, but in order to survive, they will adapt to the new technology, and most of them and some of them are adapting to the new technology. So when you get into issues of privacy and, and especially security, Rick, that's really where blockchain has its sweet spot, right? The real value delivery of blockchain, would you say, is, is pinned to security? That is correct. And uh, also, you know, there is uh, quite a few features and functionalities that blockchain um, addresses. You know, we can get into uh, some of the more uh, attractive one uh, with respect to zero knowledge proof and so forth that you don't really have to show so much of your privacy to be able to achieve something right so it's a very very good technology uh so let's talk about the the application software that social um creates as dealing with social communities and enterprises um in in your company's words augmented by permissioned blockchain so if you would delve into that a bit, Rick, and talk about the practical applications there and, and also some of the challenges uh, of the ex- Internet as we know it now that, that this addresses. Yeah, so Zosial, uh, again, as the name uh, uh, applies to, it, it, it comes from a Zen social, which is calm and um, uh, peaceful social media. So the applications that we are building on top of blockchain uh, comprises of three different uh, uh, areas. One of them is uh, social media, and then uh, we combine social media with a um, mobile commerce, e-commerce, and financial services, uh, in particular in the fintech uh, services area. So this is a this is a social media commerce payment fintech services in one app. It's a super app that we are uh, currently working on with a huge customer, actually a community base um, in in Asia right now. Uh, is there a particular geography that this seems most uh, apt for or where this is uh, offering the most market application or perhaps the best market application where it's needed most? Uh, you mentioned Asia, Rick. Is is that certainly comes to mind, but is it possible to geo-target this to some degree? Well, um, the, the interesting part about this type of uh, application is that they, you know you, you you really want to include all level of society. If you look at Asia right now, specifically in Southeast Asia, um, I compare Southeast Asia similar to what China was ten years ago. Mm. Right? Uh, if you look at China right now. The number of uh, middle class out of China, I mean, it's just it's just mind-boggling, mm-hmm. especially in the last 10, uh, 5 to 10 years. And this is where Southeast Asia is right now. Recent research from uh, Google and Temasek uh, throw a number that the Southeast Asia internet economy is to grow to $240 billion from 2000, you know, to, you know, by 2025 up from $72 billion just last year. And that's U.S. That, dollars? That is U.S. dollars. Okay. That's right. So, 
So, and, and, and in particular, to include all levels of society, there are a lot of people out there that are underserved, underbanked, uh, even unbanked, right? So, but they are yet digital savvy. They have uh, smartphone, mobile phones, smart devices. And in particular, what's very important about this region is the median age. The median age is under 30 years old. And they are, they picked up digital, uh, you know, very, you know, much faster than uh, other regions. Mm-hmm. So taking that somewhat unique marketplace, Rick, then how are you driving a market strategy or what's your value proposition for that particular group if that's the growth area you see? Okay. So what, one of the uh, biggest value props is that we are, you know, we have engaged with the largest um, social uh, community, and uh, I believe it could be in the world. Um, this community specifically, um, it, it, it consists of more than 91 million members. Um, it was founded about 100 years ago. And within that 91 million members, they have uh, sub-organizations and sub-divisions of this uh, community. And one of the divisions is called the Business Owners uh, entrepreneurs division. Within the business owners itself, there are approximately about 3 million business owners. And that is our uh, biggest value uh, proposition right now is that we are uh, working with this huge communities. Even most countries in the world, you know, they don't have 91 million people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and let alone, you know, supplying I and mean, pro- providing them with the best of the best and the latest technology. And I mentioned before the 3 million business owners and majority of those business owners are the micro, small, medium businesses. And, and this is the key to growing a country or a region or a global economy is you need to increase the level of human capital, especially at the micro and small businesses. And that's where we are targeting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, your background is, is fascinating, Rick, because I mentioned a long time Silicon Valley insider, right, within the tech sector. Um, yeah. Your background is in the processor world, in the networking, mm-hmm. Silicon, the systems area. Um, how are you applying that rich experience in, in you know, what was a constantly evolving milieu um, into this blockchain sector and the value proposition that you're offering there at Zocial? Okay. So that's very, uh, very, very good questions uh, because right now um, the blockchain and 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 this uh, new uh, I call it a you know the next uh, transforming the internet to be the global network of trust. This one right now it's only a matter of when we, we will hit a mass adoption. Um, there you know uh, enterprise communities, uh, big companies, small companies, everybody is involved in this uh, blockchain world right now. So today, um, if you look at the internet and with my background, which is the infrastructure of the internet, if you look at the internet, that is four or five decades old. And the internet was built primarily on applications such as email, file transfers, protocols, and so forth. Yes, it has evolved quite a bit in the last three to four decades, but it wasn't built for the applications that we are really throwing at it today. So the way I looked at it, you know, once you solve the 
protocol, the interoperabilities, as well as the consensus uh, algorithm within the blockchain uh, uh, realm and platform, it's not done. You still have the layer, what I call the layer zero. Once you solve layer one, layer uh, layer two, uh, uh, transaction per second, deterministics, and and, 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 and and all that good stuff, what happened in layer zero? And that is where I think the internet and the uh, processor backgrounds, um, you know, uh, give us a quite an edge in, in, in that layer zero area. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick, final question for you. Um, your CES 2020 strategy. Uh, whom are you looking to engage? What are you? Uh, what are you doing to approach CES 2020 from a strategic standpoint? Okay, at CES uh, we are hoping to meet with much more communities out there, be it social, sports group, or others uh, that share a common interest. Uh, even large enterprises that uh, we are uh, hoping to engage with soon in Southeast Asia. Uh, you know, these guys have 200,000 more employees. That in itself is can be considered as a community right there. So uh, we're also con- continuously looking for value-add services to add to our super app for our uh, large community based in Southeast Asia. And therefore, I hope to find some useful, innovative uh, companies and technologies that we can uh, work with and be partners and, and add some value, more, more value into the super app. Last but not least, we're also uh, fundraising and hope to meet with uh, potential investors. So it's the community, the enterprise, the uh, uh, partners, uh, new technology, and the uh, investors. CES is where business gets done, no question. Rick Blazinski is CEO and co-founder of Zocial, a startup in the red-hot field of blockchain. Rick, enjoy the conversation, and we'll see you in about a month at CES. Thank you very much, Tyler. All right, coming up next time on CES Tech Talk, you hear us say it with regularity. Every company today is or needs to be a tech company. It's almost a strategy at this point. So a conversation with two companies you may not associate with technology, but will be at CES 2020, CVS Health and also Weber Grill. As for the latter, this is a company that has been around for more than half a century. We will discuss the what and the why this American company that's an icon in the grilling and outdoor cooking sector sees such value in technology growth as its future. It is rapidly evolving, as uh, you and your audience know as well as I ever could. Um, the, the appearance of technology, whether it's in the, the kitchen or on the patio, in food preparation is, is evolving rapidly. That is next time on CES Tech Talk. Now, of course, we want you to be CES ready, so do yourself a favor. You can subscribe to this CES Tech Talk podcast. That way, you won't miss a single episode as we're getting you ready for the 2020 show. Speaking of, the dates, again, January 7th through the 10th in Las Vegas. The information you need to help plan and prepare is all at the website, ces.tech. That is ces.tech. As always, none of this is possible without the true stars of our podcast, senior studio engineer John Lindsay and our executive producer, Tina Anthony. Y'all are the best in the business. I'm Tyler Suters. Let's talk tech again soon.